Well, good evening, everybody. How are we? Good, good, good. Uh, did you enjoy week one of the uh, Supernatural series this last week? Good, good. You're back, so I figured you must have uh, mostly enjoyed it. I'm uh, much like last week. I am still the guy you did not come here to see. So uh, my name is Brian Kiley. If we have not met, one of the pastors here at Bridgeway. Thank you for coming out tonight and and being a part of this. This is uh, obviously very, very valuable teaching, very valuable material that that I know Pastor Lance and, and the rest of us are are excited to to get out to you. And and I think you're really going to benefit from. Tonight, uh, what I want to do for the next eight to ten minutes is is if you watch if you watch TV shows, if you ever you turn on an episode and they say things like previously on Designated Survivor to kind of get you caught up to the present, that's my job tonight. So we're going to have about an eight to ten minute recap of last week, and then Pastor Lance will come out and buckle up. All right, so. Uh, first of all, just a little logistical thing. While this isn't necessarily a church service, and maybe it feels a little bit more uh, like a lecture than a sermon, you are still allowed to engage. Amens and whatnot are encouraged, especially if you're sitting up close. We're filming this, so your talking back at the stage is a good thing. Amen? Amen. Boom. Nailed it. All right. So, uh, so there you go. This last week... Week one, in case you missed it, or in case you just need a refresh, because kind of life happened this last week. Last, last week, Pastor Lance introduced the concept of the supernatural and then started discussing miracles and prayer. Miracles and prayer. And here are some of the key ideas from week one, just to refresh you. First of all, he talked about this idea that the supernatural is natural to us. The supernatural is natural to and for us. That we are supernatural beings. We're supernatural beings who serve a supernatural God. And the Bible tells us that we should live supernatural lives. That is simply a part of who we are. So in learning about the supernatural, we're learning about the life that we have been invited into. We are supernatural beings made in the image of God. Uh, second is, is that we get what Christ has. We get what Christ has. As Christians, when we are born again, we're united with Christ. And all that he has belongs to us. He gives what he has to us. He gives us his righteousness, power, and authority. It's why we pray in the name of Jesus. We're not praying by our own authority. We're praying by the authority that Jesus gives us. Another concept that Pastor Lance covered is simply the idea that miracles are for today. We believe and we teach here at Bridgeway that miracles are for today. There wasn't a, a time in the past when those gifts operated and that time is, is no longer uh, part, of, part of today. We believe that the era of the miraculous is continuing on today. Uh, the next is this. Is I think you could ask the question, why is it important? that we're trained up in the supernatural? Why is it important that we're trained up in prayer? Why is it important that we're trained up to ask God for the miraculous? The, the simple truth is, Lance covered last week, is we may be missing miracles. We may be missing miracles. Sometimes we miss what's around us. We miss what God is doing around us just because we're not paying attention. I don't know about you. I can certainly relate to that. We get tied up with our own stuff, and we miss the miraculous happening in our midst. So, so part of this series is training us to be people who know how to pay attention, who know how to see the work of God in our everyday 
lives and who can recognize what is going on as the miraculous activity of God that it truly is. We also talked a little bit about how Jesus and others in the Bible asked God to move in miraculous ways. Jesus and other key figures, most of the time when they performed miracles or miracles were performed in response to their prayers, they were, command, they were issuing commands. They weren't simply asking. They were commanding things to happen. And oftentimes, oftentimes, God moved in accordance with those commands. That's not to say that, that every sort of prayer is always meant to be a command sort of prayer. There is still lots of value in asking God for things. So, but, so we talked about the idea of commanding miracles and request-based prayer, and both are powerful. We also talked about the simple idea that prayer matters. Prayer matters. And why does prayer matter? Ultimately, prayer matters because God says it matters. Ultimately, it matters because God says it matters. That God, in his wisdom and his sovereignty and his love, has set up the world in such a way that he often moves and accomplishes what he wants to accomplish through the prayers of his people. Through the prayers of his people. So God, who could do whatever he wanted on his own, has chosen to involve us in the process of accomplishing his work in the world. So prayer matters. It's important that we also recognize that answers to prayer are not random. Answers to prayer aren't simply random. But the system for how God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sifts and sorts our prayers and answers, that it is complex. It is complex. Oftentimes, our answers to prayer seem random. Like, if you ever had that question of like, God, what? It seemed like you're really moving in this area and answering this, this, this prayer, but this seems like a pretty valid request, and I don't really see a lot of movement over here. Uh, we need to understand it's not random. It's a complex system designed by a sovereign God who desires a relationship with his children. And I think it's important to, to add that a day is coming when we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to see the way that God moved through all of history and it will make sense. In talking about the supernatural, we also talked about, and this relates a little bit to the teaching this weekend, we talked about the idea that when love is absent, the supernatural gets weird. That when a genuine love for God and a genuine love for people is absent, that's when if you've had a negative experience with supernatural ministry, if you've had a negative experience with supernatural teaching, that's probably what was going on. There was not love for God and there was not love for people, so all of a sudden things got, for lack of a better word, and I don't know that there is a better word, weird, right? So we want to stu study and understand the supernatural in a way that is rooted in a deep love for God and rooted in a deep love for people, so that this isn't, it's not about learning, you know, it's not about learning things that are showy, it's not about learning things to draw attention to ourselves, it's about God and people, it has to be about God and people, and it has to be about love. The last bit of review from last week, and then I'll, I'll, I'll very briefly forecast what we're going to hear tonight, a key premise of this series is the idea that something may not happen to you but that doesn't mean it's not legit when it happens to somebody else. That something may not happen to you, but it doesn't mean it's not legit when it happens to somebody else. Other people may have experiences with God that you will never have. That doesn't mean they're faking it. That doesn't mean they're making it. And it certainly doesn't mean you should fake it to try to be like them. <laughs> right? We cannot allow our experience 
be what determines the legitimacy of something else. Like, for example, I've, I don't know about you, but I've been in different prayer environments, group prayer environments, where we'll be praying, and I'm sitting there quietly, sort of, you know, praying along in my head with whoever's praying out loud, and somebody to my right or to my left might begin praying in, in tongues, in their own prayer language, just quietly, them and the Lord, and I can kind of overhear and, and this and that. And I do not have the gift of tongues. I have never spoken in tongues. Perhaps, I don't know, maybe that's up to God if he ever gives me that gift. I, you know, that's completely up to him. I don't have that gift. But that doesn't mean that the person next to me who's communicating with God in their prayer language, they're not being boisterous, they're not being demonstrative. That's just how they connect with the Lord. It doesn't mean that's not legit. That's beautiful. Praise God. I think it's wonderful. So it's important for us to recognize we're not all going to have every experience that the pastor talks about in this series, that does not mean these experiences are not, are not legitimate. It's very important. Now, as we move into week two, Pastor Lance is going to be addressing three primary questions, and they're great questions. <laughs> Number one, he's going to address the question of why is it that some people seem to have more ability to move in the supernatural than others? Why is it that it seems like, like God clearly did not create a level playing field here? It seems like some people have, have the ability to move in the supernatural more than others. The second question is simply, how do spiritual gifts work? How do spiritual gifts work? What are we to make of them? How do they, how do they operate within the body of Christ, within our individual lives? And then third, the question he's going to answer is why does God seem to work in some situations and places and not others? We referenced this a moment ago. Why is it that God seems to work in some situations and places and then others that seem equally valid or equally, like an equally good place for God to move, he he doesn't seem to? So uh, Pastor Lance is going to be addressing those three questions this evening. Get ready. It's going to be a fun next, uh, we've got an hour and 50 minutes till 8.30, so it's going to be a next fun, fun, fun little bit. Would you please join me in welcoming out Pastor Lance? Well, hi, everyone. Good to see you. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the supernatural is natural to true believers, to us. Therefore, I want all that God has for me. I want all that the Bible speaks of to be true in my life. I want more of the presence of God in my life and in my ministry. I want to increasingly operate in the power of the Holy Spirit, and I want to advance the kingdom of God for his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. But how? That's the challenge, is it not? But how exactly are we going to do that? How can we increase and mature in the area of the supernatural? Is it all just a mystery? Is it really that God is random? No, it's that God is complex. His ways are higher than our ways, and the way that he does things and the things that he's interested in and the greater plans that he has in play are beyond our comprehension. Therefore, it seems random, but we do not serve a capricious God. We do not serve a God that just randomly throws things out just to mess with our heads. That's not the point. God actually has a reason for why he does what he does. What I'm going to try to do today is to give you a new paradigm, a fresh paradigm to understand how the supernatural works in the lives of believers and to demystify the spiritual gifts. What I'm about to share 
depending on your background, may be life-changing. Because if any of you have tried to walk in the supernatural, it is a complicated ride. You ready to go? All right, let's do this. Here we go. It does not take a genius to quickly realize that the church is full of people who are having different experiences in their walk with Christ, right? Some seem so victorious and others are clearly struggling. Some have an explosive prayer life and others don't think their last one made it past the ceiling. Some people are seeing angels and demons and others can barely see the pastor. Some are calling down fire, and others are calling down their menu order. You understand what I'm saying? All right. Why are some people so attuned to the supernatural and others aren't? Why are some people's prayers and ministry over others so effective and other people's are not? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what we're going to go through. So get ready, go ahead and grab your notes and let's dive right into this. I believe that there are four spheres of the Christian experience when it comes to the supernatural. I believe there are four spheres in the Christian life and the experience through the supernatural. Number one, I call it the normal Christian experience. The normal Christian experience. This is what is available to all of God's kids. The normal Christian experience. In other words, this is what the Father intended, what Christ brought, and what the Holy Spirit wants to empower. We don't yet know even what that is. Everyone has an opinion. No one has wrapped their minds or lives around it, and I doubt we ever will. Nevertheless, there are things that God intends for all of his children, and it's our responsibility to chase after it and to grow up into it. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a huge deal. And I don't think that most of us have yet scratched the surface. What does it look like? The Bible says that we are partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? That is your identity. So how does it work out? How does it flesh out? Wow, I have no idea. But that's why we're in this series. I believe that if our true church, meaning the big C church, the church all across the world, if we activate it in our regular, normal, spiritual lives that God wants for us, the world would be having Pentecost over and over and over and over again. Hmm. Number two, human design. What do I mean by human design? I mean personality and uniqueness. In other words, This is the personality and uniqueness of God's design of humans in general. It expresses why it's easier for melancholies or feelers or emotional people to hear the Lord. It talks about why intellectuals have an easier time grasping systematic theology and knowing about God. Although it's the normal Christian life, there is a difference from one person to another. Some denominations, churches, and groups are formed simply by this factor alone. All the same personalities hang out together. All the same styles hang out together. They're called homogenous groups. And it's why we have a lot of denominations and different churches today. Number three, spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Contrary to some teachers, I do not believe that everyone has all 
the spiritual gifts. I understand the concept that if we have the Holy Spirit, then all the gifts he brings may be present in our lives. I just don't think that's demonstrated biblically. I think that we all have at least one. We'll get into that. I think that the Holy Spirit gifts some with one thing, some with another, and I think the main reason he does this is to demand interdependence and unity. I don't think it's an accident. I think it's perfectly planned. Number four, anointing. Anointing, that is supernatural endowment. Supernatural endowment. This is not a gift, not in a spiritual gift sense. It is a gift from God but not a spiritual gift, the way that we look at it. It's an empowerment of his presence. It's a supernatural endowment for a relatively specific purpose. It's the intangible mojo that some Christians operate in and other ones don't. And you're like, what is with that person? Something's weird about that person. When I get around that person or I get into that environment, something is different in the atmosphere. That's the anointing of God. Now, it tends to be attached to a person, but there is such a thing as a location, an event, and a time-specific anointing. For example, it's specific to an area and tends more to be more restricted and limited. For example, the mission field. Why is it that people go off on a mission field and they have all these radical experiences and they come home and nothing? There is a reason for it. It's complex, but it's reasonable. Yeah, there's an obvious reason why that happens. Sometimes it is the prep that you have done in your heart and the way that you have carved out space for God to work in your lives. But sometimes it's because God is doing an anointed work in another location and you joined into that cloud and then you moved out of that cloud. Are you all following me? That is anointing. Now, is Jesus Christ our example? I'm going to argue over and over and over that Jesus Christ is our example to follow. However, I need you to understand that he is a blend of all four. Therefore, in some ways, you will not duplicate him. In other ways, you are to duplicate him. But let me give you an example. Was he living the normal Christian experience? Well, kind of. He is perfected humanity fully linked with the Father. What I believe, and I have taught for many, many years, is I call it the blindfold method. That when the second person of the Trinity, who we know as the Son of God, when he came down here, Philippians 2 says that he did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to. And what it says is that he let go of it and came down in the form of humanity. Here's how I picture it that God himself blindfolded him, his own self. At any moment he could remove the blindfold, he's still God, just because you put on a blindfold doesn't mean you're no longer God. But he blindfolded himself and stopped up his ears so he would only operate on the power of the Holy Spirit and he would only do what the Father directed him to do. In other words, he limited himself so that we could follow his example. However, he lived a sinless life. There was no distortion. We have a lot of distortion. So we're not getting the same clear channels that he is. In the second way, he is a unique human being. Jesus was a man, fully God, fully man, right? All right? That means he had a personality. 
It means he lived in the Middle East in the ancient world. It means that his experience walking with his father in this world is different than ours here in modern-day America. He's unique. The third, was he hyper-gifted? Yeah. When you got a 12-year-old that's absolutely stunningly brilliant sitting in the temple telling everybody else what to do, that's pretty awesome. This is a prodigy. This is a hyper-gifted human being. And lastly, did he have extra anointing? Yeah, he certainly did. The Father and the Holy Spirit did intense stuff around him. The Bible says he emerged out of that desert of temptation fully loaded with power. All right. There's a big debate of what is gifts and what is growth. And this is super important. Am I waiting around for God to give it to me or am I pursuing it and trying to grow up in it? This is a huge debate. And when we get this wrong, we get very frustrated and we get very hurt. So what's a gift from God alone? What can be taught by man on God's behalf, right? I believe that there's three unique ways we need to look at this. Number one, human design and spiritual maturity can be harnessed, taught, and trained, but man, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work. Let me say that again. Human design and spiritual maturity can be worked with. It can be harnessed. It can be taught. It can be trained, but it's a lot of hard work. It is part of the normal Christian experience. Therefore, it needs to be taught, led, and trained. Now, the Holy Spirit has to provide the power to shape it, but God made us in a way that we can grow up in it. Think about normal human growth pattern, right? Babies get little arms and legs, but they don't know how to use them, right? I just did recently baby dedications, and some of the babies don't know how to use their necks, right? It's like, whoa, I don't know where you're at, that kind of thing, or I can't focus on you. You got all the parts, but it's intriguing that God does not instantaneously give you the ability to use what he's given you. There's a certain matter of maturity and growing up. How do we always grow up? We always grow up with role modeling. That's how babies look around and they say, everyone else is walking. I should be doing that. They understand the idea of crawling. They begin to motor and they begin to try it out a little bit and their muscles begin to strengthen. And as they develop, they begin to stand up. All right. Same thing with faith and the relationship with God. The Bible indicates that faith and relationship with God matters and has a significant impact, and those things need to be developed. Prayer and intimacy is a big deal. Jesus said, right, once again, John 14, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you're connected to me, you will bear much fruit, right? So there is a huge demand of are you connected to the source, and the source is not a power source, it's a person source, right? And we'll talk a lot about that. Understand power and authority. Being a child of God comes with perks and resources. When your dad's the king, you get new cool stuff, all right? But the key for us to grow up, our key is submitting ourselves to God and obeying along the way. Why did Jesus operate in such unhindered and fluid movement of the Holy Spirit? He lived in absolute obedience at all times. There was no hindrance, no blocks, no frustrations, none of that kind of stuff, which we are wrestling with all the time. So 
in order for us to grow up in it, we have to become less of us and more of him. We need to carve out more space for him. The way that we carve out more space is what's called spiritual disciplines. For example, when we fast, we're fasting for us, not for him. We're fasting for us to decrease ourself so the Holy Spirit has more room to fill the cup. Make sense? Fasting is really for us. It's not, we're not begging God and going, God, seriously, I'm super hungry. Right? That's, fasting is not to manipulate him. Fasting is the whole time the Holy Spirit's like, hey, I'd love to get in there and help you, but man, you are packed, right? You got to get that level down, brother, if we're going to try to do anything here. And so we're trying to decrease our selfishness and increase in the power of the Holy Spirit. And like I said, it's hard work. It's not hard work generating it. It's hard work stop being us, <laughs> right? Uh, it's hard work. Like, for example, you go, is Christianity easy or hard? Well, Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So Christianity is supposed to be easy. Then why is it so hard? Because we're so stubborn. We are so rebellious. So if I told you, all you got to do is surrender. Is surrender easy or hard? I don't know. Depends how stubborn you are, Right? So no, it's not difficult because God said, I'm the one that rescued you. I'll empower you. I'm all over you. I'm doing everything, but wow, you won't let go of the wheel, right? Second area, gifts can't be taught per se, but they can be introduced, sought, honed, and trained. Gifts cannot be taught per se. That's by definition, they are a gift, right? If they can be earned, they would be a reward. There's a big difference between a reward and a gift, okay? So they can't be taught per se, but they can be introduced, they can be sought after, and they can be trained, right? Gifts are given by a good person with no effort on your part. Both are good, they're just different, gifts and rewards. Paul said, eagerly desire the greater gifts. He spoke of pursuit. Chase after it. Do something with it. So you can, you can seek after it. I also don't believe that the list, and we'll get into this in detail, I don't believe that the list of spiritual gifts in the Bible is exhaustive. I believe there's samples. I believe there's more. You may have a dormant gift you never even knew you had. And until you get into an environment where someone's talking about it and you start going, wait a second, that happens in my life. All of a sudden, ta-da, it opens up. So is it important to be introduced to it? Absolutely. We'll talk about that. I think that gifts are gifts, meaning I don't believe that the fancy supernatural looking ones are any different than other gifts. For example, we try to split out the list. Oh, these are sign gifts, so now they're handled differently, right? So we look at the gift of healing or we look at the gift of prophecy and we see it different than the gift of teaching. Why? Aren't they all gifts from God? So if he is giving them to us and they are supernatural in nature, then they're not different. I think they need to be handled an awful lot the same. There's different rules. I mean, the same rules that apply to both of them. Let me talk about my preaching and teaching gift. So the only reason I believe that I have a preaching and teaching gift is because I've seen evidence and fruit and confirmation from other people. Now, what I mean by that is... I've taught preaching classes. But even if I teach the principles, 
certain things come very easy to me. That is a gift. It doesn't mean everyone else isn't teaching. It means things are super easy for me in that area, comes very naturally to me, and when I do them, I tend to get a better reward for doing it than other people that would struggle through the exact same thing. I think the same thing happens with healing and the miraculous. Gifts, I believe, are gifts. Now, I also believe that I operate under an anointing, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Gifts change a person's ability. I need you to write that down. Gift change, gifts change a person's ability. That is different than anointing that changes atmosphere. One changes ability, one changes atmosphere, all right? And I think that gifts stick with a person even in disobedience, and they can be used improperly. I believe that they can be distorted, and I believe that they can be used for selfish gain. Why? Because when God gives people a gift, he also gives you an awful lot of rope, <laughs> right? And just says, what are you going to do with it, kid? And sometimes people have really distorted their gifts and done some pretty crazy stuff. Okay. Now, last one on that. Number three, anointing can be asked for and sought after, but not self-generated. Anointing can be asked for and sought after, but not self-generated. Um, I first came in contact with this concept of anointing when I was reading a book by Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill was a guy, uh, he has passed away now uh, more recently, but he was kind of one of those fiery preachers uh, during the 80s and the 70s. And Leonard Ravenhill wrote a book called Why Revival Tarries. And in that book, he was basically saying that the reason God's not moving on us right now more powerfully is because we don't pray. We're not praying people. Anyway, in that book, he had a title of one of his chapters, and he was super quotable. He said, with all thy getting, get unction. With all thy getting, get unction, which sounds pretty cool. Problem was, I didn't know what unction meant. <laughs> that kind of stopped the process. I had to go to the dictionary, and I had to look up unction. Here's what he meant. With everything you have, if you're going to be in ministry, get the intangible power of God, however you need to get it. Meaning that it is the power of God that truly changes lives. You just looking fancy and shiny is not going to do anything. The power of God does something. So with everything you have, get that. And then you ask him, well, how do I get that? He's like, I don't know. And the idea is that that comes from the Lord alone, right? But you know that the presence of God is what changes lives. So we chase after that. The, remember, anointing changes atmosphere. Anointing changes atmosphere. I think that anointing can come and go depending on the purposes of God. I believe it can come and go. Think of it like a cloud. It can come and go. I didn't say the Holy Spirit comes and goes. I said the anointing can come and go. I also believe that the Bible says that God even anoints non-believers, meaning King Cyrus, who issued a decree for the Jews to go back home. He wasn't even a believer, but the Holy Spirit came upon that guy and had him suddenly start prophesying and doing crazy stuff, and then the Holy Spirit's like, I'm out, <laughs> took off, right? But he was anointed for a time. One thing seems very clear to me, many times, and this is so important, many times anointing has relatively little to do with maturity or godliness. 
that's where I'm going to really be camping a little bit later in our series, I mean a little bit later in our message. Anointing has relatively little to do with maturity and very little to do with holiness. That's why it creates it so mysterious. All right. Now, when you're trying to sort them all out, you're like, is this the normal Christian life, or is this like a spiritual gift, or is this just my personality, or is this anointing? It all starts messing together, and you're like, man, this is so confusing. All the stuff looks like each other. Spiritual gifts tend to be an acceleration of a normal aspect of the Christian life, but wow, they look like regular stuff, right? When you know somebody that has a spiritual gift, you're like, are you gifted or are you just super mature? I can't tell. So here's the way I describe spiritual gifting. I call it cutting in line. (laughs) Cutting in line. Here's why. We all need to have faith. Yes? The Bible says that we all need to increase our faith. How do we increase our faith? By the word of God, by testimony, things like that. So we need to be ever increasingly more confident in who God is. We need to trust him more. So we're all struggling to become more faith-filled. Can we all agree on that? And we're all moving forward in little inches. And it's like, oh, I finally got a victory. And then we go, two step forward, one step back, right? (laughs) And we're like, I think I'm growing. I think I'm growing, right? And so we're trying to grow up in the Lord. All of us need to grow up in faith, And all of a sudden, you have some 18-year-old come into your prayer meeting, and their faith is off the charts. And you're like, what is going on? Man, I am 45, and I've been working on this a really long time. This little punk comes walking in, and they're like, I just believe God. And you're like, how do you do that? Man, you're irritating, right? Spiritual gifts are cutting in line. We're all waiting in this long line of growing faith moving this fast. And all of a sudden, some other kid's like, on their, <laughs> like their little skateboard, and they cut in line. You're like, I'm never going to get there. That is a spiritual gift. It's not different faith. It's an increase in faith. He got to jump ahead, and you did not. Ah, that's why a lot of us wrestle with jealousy about spiritual gifts, right? Yeah. Anointing looks like gifts, but either it's a gift or it is maturity, Because it just looks like God likes everyone better and gives them better stuff. We look at our presents under the tree, right? And they get bigger presents. You're like, God must love them. Anointing looks like someone's super mature and close to God, but they may not be. That's very, very important. Anointing, as I mentioned, is the Holy Spirit coming in close and getting stuff done personally. Here's how I want you to think of anointing. Hey, kid, do you mind if I preach for a second? Excuse me. And he just moves me out of the way. And he starts teaching on his own. I'm just simply there for eye candy. I'm just kidding. Okay, (laughs) we move on. (laughs) Here's when all this stuff, yeah, I just totally derailed myself. (laughs) That's why you don't do jokes. All right. Here's when confusion hurts. If we keep trying to struggle and strain for a gift, we become distraught. You know what I mean? Where you're just like, Lord, I know, like that person over there, they have this killer stuff, and we're just straining and straining, and God goes, whoa, 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 that's not for you. What are you doing? If we sit around and wait for maturity, we're never going to get there. 
there's a lot of us that God's going, um, you need to grow up, kid. And you're sitting at home, still watching TV, going, at any time, Lord, you can bring it. Any time, Lord, you can bring it. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I brought it. You ain't doing nothing with it. That's the problem. The other time it hurts is when we think that God doesn't love us as much. God does not distribute fair or equally like we think he should, but it has nothing to do with his love. It has to do with his plan and purposes. And we need to learn to play our part rightly without spending our whole time looking over our shoulder at everybody else. That actually is an issue with us. Here's a personal pet peeve of mine. Pet peeve is when an anointed person writes a book and tells us how to do it. That kills me. Why? Because I'm going, you don't even know how to do it. You got anointed. You actually got this whole empowerment where the Holy Spirit moved you out of the way, and then you're like, here's how I did it. I'm like, no, I've done everything you did, and I'm still not getting the same results that you're getting. No, they mean well. Here's where we don't need to get all, all angry at them. They mean well. What they're trying to do is have a humble spirit, and they're saying, listen, I'm nobody special. So if I can do it, you must be able to do it. But the problem is they're not doing it in the normal flesh. They're doing it in an anointing. Then all of a sudden they write this book and they're like, all I did simply was spend more time with Jesus. And you're like, I'm spending tons of time with Jesus. Jesus is like weak sauce. You don't, I don't like your time with me. You know, I mean, is that what's going on? No. Okay, bottom line, Billy Graham's anointed. Okay, I don't care how much you try. You can call people forward all over the, time, all over the place. You're not going to get the Billy Graham result. If Billy Graham writes a book on how to preach, he's not that awesome. I'll be honest with you. You know who's awesome is the Holy Spirit inside Billy Graham. That's who's awesome. Because when the Holy Spirit calls out, everybody gets saved. It's crazy, right? Usually people that are anointed write books just to be humble and to help out. And we need to utilize their premises. We need to learn their principles. There are certain things we can learn from them. But please don't assume you're going to duplicate their anointing because then you just get angry and sad and discouraged, right? Here we go. Some, of our, some parts of our journey are supposed to be difficult and some are not. Growing is good. If God wanted us instantly to be everywhere, he would have built us as human beings right off the bat. I mean, excuse me, as adults right off the bat. But he didn't. He always puts process into his creation, does he not? I mean, how do you know when you're going to plant a garden? A lot of times, if you do it from the beginning, you plant little seeds that don't look anything like it. And you have to wait and let process carry through. We live in an era where we want everything super fast. And we go, God, you don't love me. God, it's not working. God, it's not working. God, it's not working. One of the things that we forget about the Bible is you don't get any sense of time passing in the Bible. And if you look a little bit closer, like you go back and you realize, I believe the stat, and I might get this wrong, but the stat was after David, King David's anointing, it was 16 years before he became the king that he was anointed to be. Well, we always assume he got anointed, had the oil poured on his head, and he suddenly became king. No, it was over a decade and a half later. But we don't see that. We assume that everything happens right away. Otherwise, God's not in it. 
that's not true. Please allow yourself process. We all have to grow up. But we can't quit. That I do know because this is about our precious Lord and his Holy Spirit, and he is worth the process. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's dig deeper into those four spheres. Like I told you, they are the normal Christian experience for all kids. They are human design. They are spiritual gifts and anointing. Let's go ahead and dive into each one of them. Let's talk about the normal Christian experience. G.K. Chesterton has a famous quote. He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. That's tough, right? Anybody fully sold out? We don't have a whole lot of uh, role models of that, do we? Where someone is all in. We usually have people that are half and half, right? People that are well-meaning, but they're not all in. So I don't think we have seen, outside of Jesus, the normal Christian experience. I think that we are at the bottom level, and there's so much to rise up to. One of the most important factors of your and my growth is receiving and understanding our identity in Jesus Christ. At Bridgeway Church, we've done a whole year on identity. I've written books on identity. I think it's the thing. Because all the rest of our lives, we're unpacking what God built into us. When we begin to understand the power and authority that comes from Jesus Christ uniting with us, it opens up our minds to a whole nother world. We need to understand our identity in Jesus Christ. From the beginning, we are transformed from the walking dead to the alive in Christ. Our spirits are turned on and filled with light. The machines of our God life are ignited. That means that the supernatural may operate in Christians very early in their walk. We are born and bred in the supernatural, and therefore we immediately walk in the supernatural thereafter. As I said, we have very few role models. Who's completely sold out? Here's the example of Jesus Christ. He was human. He was uniquely human. But he lived as an example for us to follow. So what is possible for us? What has God given us? How did God make us? What have we been equipped with to lead our successful and healthy supernatural lives? We begin in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. You can just listen to this. It says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us into his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and with brotherly affection love for if these qualities are yours the word says and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our lord jesus christ what does that mean it means we are over equipped 
with a supernatural identity, supernatural help, supernatural connection, supernatural authority, and supernatural power. That's the normal Christian life. And that's available to all of his children. John 15, 5, I referred to it earlier. John said, uh, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do you realize that you are built for fruit production? We always think that somehow God's resistant to us. He built us for his glory to produce much fruit. An unfruitful life is not how he built it. He built us and is just waiting on us to operate in what he's given us. We've got to dig in to the pouch that we were given at the beginning with so many presents, so many things to look at. Beyond our new identity in Christ, what has God given us for victory? Let me give you a quick list. Number one, connection with the God of the universe. Connection with God of the universe. God is our Father. Prayer matters, and it's powerful. That's what we talked about last time we were together. Number two, the indwelling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Do you even know the power of Pentecost? It means that God is working inside us. What is that making a difference in our lives? It should be huge. Number three, what has he given us? The name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ. It's not simply a moniker. His name contains the power of his identity and nature. It's who he is. When you operate in the name of Jesus, you are operating in his authority, not your own. It is the name that is above all names, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says. Colossians 3, 17 says, whatever you do, do it in the name of of Jesus Christ. Acts 3.16 says his name has the power to heal. In Acts 4.29 to 31, it says that his name has the power of miracles. In Acts 9.27, it says his name gives us the power to preach boldly. In Acts 16 and 17, it says that his name has the power to cast demons. Do you guys know the story of the seven sons of Sceva? super creepy and weird. It's a bunch of guys that were Jewish exorcists and they were going around and they were casting out demons. How did they do it? Now notice they were already effective at it. How did they do it? They went around and said, I cast you out in the name of Jesus Christ whom Paul preaches. That's like a ricochet. Well, at one point it was working just fine until they happened to come up against a sticky one. They happened to come up against one that was not going to be bossed around by somebody that didn't know what they were doing. So the demon stops him. Do you remember this story? And he says, hold up. I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? <laughs> and it says, and the demon leapt upon them, tore them apart, and they left naked and bleeding. And we all look at that, and we're like, dang, oh, that really got messed up. But here's the weird part. It was working up till then. Why is that important? 
the power of the name of Jesus was doing extraordinary miracles whether those guys knew Jesus or not. How powerful is the name of Jesus Christ? Y'all following me? Whoa, that's what we have. And we're legit because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, so demons have already been notified of who we are. Uh, <laughs> Number four, you know what else we got? The ministry of angels. The ministry of angels. Did you know that angels, that's their primary job is to minister to us? There's a whole bunch of them. Everyone gets so focused on demons. Ooh, demons are everywhere. Do you realize angels outnumber demons two to one? Because yep. if one third fell, that means two thirds stayed. That's a two to one ratio. Number five, we got the armor of God. How do we know that? Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, right? Yep. You got the armor of God. You are locked and loaded for warfare. And number six, we have authority and power. We, need author we have authority and power. Here's what the normal ministry of the Holy Spirit is like. Do you realize that Jesus' life and ministry was born, sustained, and empowered by the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Yeah? You go, well, he was God. Hold up. Here we go. Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. Here we go. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That means he's going to come through the Davidic line which Jesus did, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. How did Jesus do what he did? The ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life. Guess who we have? The Holy Spirit in our lives. I've shared with some of you so many ways that he was born by the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a sinless life. He was initiated into his ministry at baptism by the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. In his testing period, he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he came out in the power of the Spirit, all the way to the resurrection of the dead by the power of the Spirit. Jesus' life was completely ran by the power of the Holy Spirit, the very same Holy Spirit that we have received. That's the normal Christian life. Acts 1, 4 through 9. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And you go, well, yeah, yeah, he did that to the 12. What about the 120? At Pentecost, when Pentecost hit, there was 120 of them. You know that story? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. How many people got one? All of them. All 120 got individual tongues of fire. Do you know what the tongues of fire are about? That is the Shekinah glory of God. In the Old Testament, everybody wanted to see that pillar of fire that followed people around in the desert. That was the presence of God. 
These are little baby Shekinah glories on everybody, that they would have a dwelling God right there with them. What every Jew always wanted collectively, they got individually. Y'all tracking with me? And it says, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What does all mean in Greek? All, praise the Lord. And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Who gets the Holy Spirit? All, everyone that calls upon the name of Jesus Christ gets the Holy Spirit. It is not just for the apostles. It is not just for the 120. He, pro- he promised right here, everyone far off that calls upon my name will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. And then sure enough, you watch Acts show how it all rolled out, right? Then the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit, and then Saul received the Holy Spirit, and then the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, Do you realize that the Holy Spirit is the primary member of the Godhead working with the church today? If anything is going on with God's ministry in your life right now, it's the Holy Spirit. He's all over the place. So if we're going to play a game where we kind of just ignore that guy, father, son, and the other dude, that kind of thing, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. Do not quench the Spirit. Why? If you shut the Holy Spirit down, the power goes out of the church. He is the power of the church. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. What we don't want to do is shut down the Holy Spirit's ministry. That we cannot do. So, how does getting the Holy Spirit work today? Can we talk about that for a moment? Because if the normal Christian experience is operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, how exactly do we get the Holy Spirit? Well, it's actually pretty straightforward. The new version is a combo pack. You invite Jesus in your life and you get him too. That's the new way. Let me explain what I mean. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You ready? In him you also, Jesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you receive Jesus Christ into your life, boom, the indwelling Holy Spirit comes in. How do we know that? Over and over and over, Romans 8, 9 through 11, Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. It's a combo pack. Get one, you get the other. The indwelling Holy Spirit. So what about all those other terms, right? What about the other terms about the Holy Spirit? What about indwelling? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's cool. What about baptism of the Holy Spirit? Oh, that one's used a whole lot, right? What about the filling of the Holy Spirit? Because the Bible uses all these terms. How do we sort them out? Let me show you a critical story. It's in Acts 19, 1 through 8. Let me read it to you. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, nope, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
And he said to them, well, then into what were you baptized? And they said, well, we got John's baptism, John the Baptist. And Paul said, okay, John's baptized, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Wait, wait, what? Hey, did you guys get baptized in the Holy Spirit? They're like, uh, no, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. He's like, all right, then get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they got the Holy Spirit. Whoa, what? Combo pack. Yeah, combo packs are good. Although the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a one-time permanent occurrence, the Bible demonstrates that the same believers got multiple receivings of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Here we go. Post-Pentecost prayer being filled with the Spirit, Peter, John, and friends, Acts 4, 29 through 31. Peter, John, and their friends already were at Pentecost. They already received the Holy Spirit, yes? This is after that. Here's what it says. And when Peter and John were arrested at the temple, they prayed to the Father. They said, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Wait, I thought you already had the Holy Spirit. Yep, and they got all filled again. That's weird. What does that mean? Here we go. Let me give you the three terms. Here's what indwelling means. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's one time. This refers to the Holy Spirit coming and living in your heart and life. The Holy Spirit sets up residence and makes his home within the believer at the moment of true conversion. And he's in. If you don't have him, you're not saved. Combo pack, right? Okay. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is also a one-time event. Now, this is where I'm going to start irritating a bunch of different theologians all over the place. Baptism is a one-time event. Why? Because baptism means immersed into and identified with. Either you're identified with the Holy Spirit or you're not. But you get identified with him and he comes and moves in. You are baptized one time, and that's what happened to the 120 at Pentecost. It's a one-time act whereby we are immersed into the Holy Spirit and we're continually identified with him moving forward. Just as you aren't baptized in water more than once, right? You get baptized and it has future implications, yes? Same thing with the Holy Spirit. It is the act that initiates the beginning of the indwelling reality. In other words, you get baptized and the Holy Spirit dwells within you. If, you're dwell, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And you're like, all right. So what's the other thing? Here we go. Filling with the Holy Spirit can happen over and over and over. What does that mean? The word in Greek for being filled with the Spirit is offering full control and reign to the Holy Spirit so that he may be in charge leading your life towards God's best. This phrase is used in three different ways. You ready? Filled with the Spirit. 
Number one, it means temporary empowerment and anointing. Like the Old Testament concept of having the Holy Spirit come on someone for a task or an office, like Samson, and the Holy Spirit came upon him, and boom, he did something crazy. And the Holy Spirit came upon David, and boom, he did something crazy. In the same way, as we are being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in, empowers for a task. That's when you start seeing everybody saying, Holy Spirit, come upon me. Holy Spirit, come upon me. That's what they mean. They mean, fill me again. And then they do something different. For example, y'all remember John the Baptist's mom, Elizabeth. Here we go. Luke 1, 39 through 42. In those days, Jesus' mom, Mary, arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. In other words, she got filled with the Holy Spirit and it began to prophesy. The Holy Spirit came in, filled her up, empowered her for a job, and boom, it began to explode. That's filling. The Bible says that his believers are filled to preach. When Peter spoke up at Pentecost, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to preach. You can be filled to evangelize like the believers in Acts chapter 4. It says that when Paul uh, blinded the bad guy, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and was able to do miracles. The filling of the Holy Spirit is that anointing that is pouring down. So, in one, it's a temporary empowerment. Number two, filled means a description of the Holy Spirit's increased control in our lives. In other words, you give him more room to move. The Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, do not be filled with much wine, but what? Be filled with the Spirit. When you are filled with much wine, what happens? The wine takes over control and starts changing your actions. So being filled with the Spirit means the Holy Spirit takes control and there are different actions that come out of it. You all following? And then uh, number three, it means... Ooh, I just messed that up. There's only two of them. The third one, the third one you probably don't want. Uh, the third one... Um, is overshadowed, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. That's how Mary got pregnant as a virgin. Okay, so you probably don't want that one. All right, let's go ahead and move on. <laughs> it was like, no, thank you. Where is the Holy Spirit? Because here's the funny thing. We have all these different songs, and we have all these different church services, and they always do. Come, Holy Spirit, right? Rain down. The Holy Spirit's like, <clears throat> I'm right here. <laughs> Rain down. He's like, uh, okay. Right? I, I think here's, here's what we mean. Release the blessings of heaven upon us. Release your anointing. That's really what we mean. But here's what I, I don't really care if you say that, and, and we all do that in different ways, but please make sure that your heart doesn't believe that the Holy Spirit's gone. Right. If you're trying to call him down, you're assuming he's somewhere else. He's not somewhere else. He's with you. He's always with you. 
That's what's so important. The Bible says that he is called the paraclete, the comforter, the one that walks alongside. So he doesn't bail out on you. So anytime you're ever trying to call the Holy Spirit, please don't go, you're not here, please come and rescue me. He's with you. And we just need to lock that into our heart. All right. Mostly what we need is our eyes open. Can we agree? Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see you move in my life. Holy Spirit, open my eyes for me to be able to release more room for you to move. Okay, so here we go. Where does the Holy Spirit's power come from in our life? We know it's all from God, right? But how does it come? This is where I get into a debate with myself. Are we storehouses or are we conduit pipes? Are we storehouses or are we conduit pipes? We're very clear it all comes from God. Yes? Now, we should never get that mixed up. But it, did God fill up our little well in jars of clay and we carry around the power to disperse at our desire? Or are we an empty pipe that only when the water's coming down through the pipe is anything coming out the other side? Y'all following me? Because the Bible seems to indicate both. That in one sense, as a child of God, you have inherent given perks of being a child of the king. You have power and authority that you operate in and you're able to utilize at your discretion. You're an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And then there's other times when the Lord, you're going, listen, I'm empty on this one. I got nothing. And you're asking for the Holy Spirit to move through you and to allow the power to come from heaven and go through you. So are we storehouses or are we conduits? I'm going to suggest to you we are both. It all depends on what you're talking about. But the part I think that we're clear on is we understand a little bit easier the conduit. I think usually we walk around feeling empty and we wait for the Lord to do something through us. Here's the problem. If you ignore the storehouse that he's given you, then you never learn to manage it well or steward it well. You just sit around waiting for God to do something. And he says, I did do something. I already empowered you. That's the part I think we're missing in our lives. I think we are walking around with some pretty powerful weapons and tools, and we're still waiting for God to move. Do you remember that God says sometimes, you fix it. You have the power to fix it. Quit looking at me. I already gave it to you. Because isn't it weird to keep asking God for a gift that he already gave you? That is awkward, right? It says this, Luke 6, 17 through 19. This is kind of cool. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They all came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. That's cool. He's like a little heater. Let's <laughs> get around him. You're like, whoo, it's coming off of him, right? Do you remember when the woman uh, who had a, a blood issue got in through the crowd and she reached and touched him? Do you remember what got his attention? It says, he said, who touched me? Power has gone out from me. So here you got everybody trying to touch him because there's power emanating off him like he's a storehouse of energy. 
And then you have this woman coming up and touching him. He's like, boo. His little, like the lights dimmed. <laughs> right? And he's like, hey, power drain. <laughs> Who's that? Who's that? Right? And then he called her out. Okay, remember, he is an example of what we are to follow. So is there a some degree that the Lord said, I have empowered you as my children? When you write checks, I cash them. Is there a degree that we need to operate in responsibility and stewardship as ambassadors? I believe that there is. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I believe some of it is given to us. We are given a measure of our storehouse to steward. And I think some of the stuff is over our heads and we just need to go to Heavenly Father and say, I got nothing for this, right? If he gave you authority over creation, do you go to him for that or do you command it? If there's something that you go, Lord, you never even said anything about this, so I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You petition and you talk to your dad and then he gets to tell you. Now understand this, whether we are storehouses or conduits, God always has the authority to go, and nope, click, and he shuts you off. Why? Because he's got a much bigger plan in play, right? So let's say you have been given the gift of healing, and you have, everyone else is, can, has the ability to pray for healing, and everybody's kind of struggling. Remember, we're all going in line very slowly, and we're all trying to learn and grow. Somebody cuts in ahead, right? And they're the, man, they got this supercharged ability to heal. What if they're going to go up and they're going to heal somebody that God says, actually, that's something they need to walk through right now? Guess what's going to happen to your gift? Boo. Nothing. God's going to go, and nope, I don't care if I gifted you. I just overrode you. And I just told you that's not going to happen. Why? Because that's not best for them. Sometimes God just shields us from ourselves, <laughs> right? Sometimes we would be walking around and we're like, everybody gets a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. You know, because we're like, I'm so nice. <laughs> and all you did was just mess everybody's lives up. God's like, nope, 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 nope. The power and the gift of discernment is beautiful. And the maturity of discernment to know when to use your gifts and how to use your gifts is critical. Can we all agree on that? Yeah, yeah it's not just us running around doing whatever we want. Now, if, it's, if it is something he's given you as a storehouse, that is what operates in faith. Remember, he always talks about how faith matters. We talked about faith last time we were together. You can go back and listen to that. But the storehouse stuff, how do we operate off of that? You really got to believe that God gave it to you. And remember, faith only comes after God has spoken. If God said you have it, you need to believe that you have it. If he didn't say you got it, it don't matter if you're trying to believe it, you don't got it. That's called hope. I hope I got it. It's not faith that you have it. Faith comes after God says something. All right? We've talked about that, so I'm just going to jump on ahead. Last couple examples about Jesus operating in what looked like a storehouse and not a conduit. Remember I told you about all those commanding prayers that Jesus almost always healed by commanding? He didn't petition. Here's another one. Y'all remember the time when Jesus got arrested in the garden and how Peter reacted? What did he do? Cut off the guy's ear. Was he aiming for his ear? No. He's trying to cut off his head. He just missed. 
right? Nobody ever goes, aha, and he slices off your ear. That's not, that's like a Zorro thing. I don't think he did that, right? He was like, I'm going to kill you. And the guy's like, whoa, and he dodged and he cut off his ear. Notice that Jesus didn't go, Father, should I restore his ear? What did he do? Picked it up. And he stuck it back on his head, <laughs> right? That's pretty awesome. That was the storehouse concept, right? And then here's the other thing. Think about how the, uh, the disciples operated in the same way. Why did Peter and John know that they had the authority? They felt like they already had it. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have. He didn't say that what I can get from a conduit. What God has already given me, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. All right, we've already talked about all that stuff, so we can move on. Conduit is simply, Lord, you've got to move here. Please just fill me that I might be able to minister to this person. That's probably what we're a little bit more familiar with, right? So I'm not going to go off on that. Here we go. Let me just set a little example. If you go on this journey to try to grow up in the supernatural, it's really up and down. It's really highs and lows, victory, discouragement. So let me give you a couple guides on this. Empowered and victorious life doesn't mean easy and comfortable. An empowered and victorious life doesn't mean it's easy and comfortable. Did Paul have an easy and comfortable life? Come on. No, of course not. It doesn't mean everything goes well for you. Actually, it is difficult to live in this world. But notice that Paul wasn't struggling with a lot of things that we struggle with and the stuff of the world, the persecution, right? It does mean that operating in the normal level of ministry of the Holy Spirit gives us certain things, okay? So, this is, this is very, very important for us to understand. And I'm going to pull it from 2 Timothy 4, 5. Here's what Paul said. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Why is that an important verse? Because when people have spiritual gifts, it's not totally different. Here's what he said to Timothy. You may not have the gift of evangelism. Guess what you still need to do? Evangelize. I don't care if you got the gift or not. If you got a gift, it's way easier, but you still need to do your job, Right? So a lot of us, we're waiting for a gift, and we're like, that's not my business. I don't have that gift. Oh, you still need to do the job, right? Hey, so-and-so needs prayer to be healed. Hey, I don't have the gift of healing. I didn't ask if you have the gift of healing. I said, you need to go pray over that person. That's actually what I said, right? Okay? So I believe that although some people may be gifted, everyone has the ability to communicate with their God. We're going to talk on one of these weeks on what it means to hear from God and to speak for God. I believe that is something we all operate in, but there's a depth and a level that some people get that other people don't. We'll talk about that. Um, but let me just say this. I'm going to give you a little list of things that help us grow in the supernatural. We were talking about how do we do this stuff? How do we get practical? Let me just get practical for you real quick. Number one, draw near to Jesus Christ. Draw near to Jesus Christ. Abide in him, right? That's what it means. It matters. Intimate prayer, intimate relational life. Once again, if you divorce it from a connection with God, you start becoming a monster. So how do we grow? Number one, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Number two, less of us, more of him. Less of us, 
more of him. We have to give the Holy Spirit room to work with. Sometimes that's release and denial of sin in our lives, right? Sometimes it's enduring tests and trials and pain. Okay. Number three, you ready? Track and join with the Holy Spirit. Track on and join with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says to walk in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. Why? Because he's always doing stuff on his agenda, and he will always empower stuff on his plate. So you want to keep in track with him. And then number four, learn and hone what you've been given. Learn and hone what you've already been given. Okay. So that is the normal Christian life. So if we're going to be talking about this stuff, that's why when a lot of people are going, well, what, what does God have for me? Do y'all feel over and abundantly blessed? Okay, great. I don't want anyone walking out of this place going, oh, woe is me. Stop. You are max dynamite, right? That's what you need to understand. Now, is your experience going to be the same as my experience? Probably not. Why? You're a different person. So the second group, and this is a super short one, is how we are all unique in our human design. God in his creativity has created all people uniquely. In addition to the incredible things that we share in common to mankind, there are a host of things that differ us from one another and alter our experience in this world to be unique. For example, I'm going to give you a couple. You ready? Number one, we are physically different in our brains and our bodies. We're physically different in our brains and our bodies. What do I mean? DNA. DNA has a huge impact on how you live. You just need to understand that. Check this stat out. We're all unique on a molecular and genetic level. No two codes of DNA are the same. It is said that although human beings are 99.9% the same as each other, that 1% or 0.10% difference leaves three million differences between each one of us and our genetic code. In other words, we are living vastly different vessels, okay? So, number one, DNA. I'm talking about hormone levels. Testosterone, estrogen, all that stuff. Do you realize my entire book that I wrote about that talked about my entire shaping of my life of having panic disorder all surrounds one hormone? I need serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Why? My serotonin is messed up. One hormone adjusted in my body, and I've had a vastly different experience with God than you have. You understand what I'm saying? Like, man, you alter one tiny thing, and whoa, our lives are different. So if you go, why, is not, why am I not like somebody else? You're unique. You're unique. Diseases and variations. There's some of us that aren't even tracking on what we got going on in our bodies. Physically, we're different from one another. If you're a diabetic, you have a different existence than I do. You have to check your insulin. You have to do all these other things. You're going to be praying about different stuff. You may have low blood sugar. You may have high blood sugar. You understand what I mean? It's going to change things. Height and strength. People are going to interact with us differently based on how our physical size is, how we engage with one another. In other words, just giving you samples, our physical bodies and minds are uniquely different. Number two, we are emotionally and relationally different. 
Let's talk about personality. Some of us are people people. Some of us are quiet and shy. Some of us are intellectually stimulated. Others are relationally stimulated. Some of us are stubborn. Some of us are easygoing, right? We could go on and on and on about all kinds of stuff. Another idea of that, our learning styles are completely different. Some of us learn by hearing, some by seeing, some by touching, some by verbal means. Some of us are sensitive and learn by instruction. Some of us are more hard-headed and learn by trial and error. Some of us can learn from a book. Some of us need it played out in front of us. Don't you understand how that changes your walk with God? Last one on that, we have different environments. You can have two kids grow up in the same home and have vastly different experiences. It's almost like they lived in two different places. Your environment's not my environment. So please, that's why it doesn't make any sense to try to match your life against mine. We're different. We're unique. What does this have to do with the, new, the supernatural and God? Everything. God's relational and he deals with all of his kids uniquely, right? So he knows what you can handle. It also means we interact with our world in a very unique relational way. We're going to have easier and more difficult areas in our lives. Intellectuals and bookworms have an easier time studying the Word of God, while experiential learners don't. Feelers will have an easier time tracking on the supernatural than thinkers. Emotionally-based people will lean into worship more than info-based people. Have you ever heard of the seven pathways? The seven pathways to God. In other words, these are seven different ways that you will tend to lean into feeling God connect with you most. Let me give you a quick list, because you might go, oh, I wonder which ones are mine, okay? Because these are all different. These are ways that people connect into God. Here you go, seven pathways of connection to God. Number one, relational. Number one, relational. Community is necessary, and you flourish in groups and relational endeavors. You're not very good on your own. Do you connect with God in groups? Number two, intellectual. Your mind has to be engaged first, then everything else follows. Are you intellectual? Number three, serving. Laboring for the kingdom just feels right. You are a doer of the word. That's how you feel like you get closer to God. Number four, contemplative. You have your best depth in alone times with God, and you actually even feel awkward around other people. You have constant reflection. You're reflecting on everything all the time. Number five, activistic, activistic. These are the action folks, excuse me, who move fast and strong and thrive on challenge and breaking new ground. If you're not doing something crazy, you're bored out of your mind. Number six, creation, creation. These are the nature lovers. You're closest to God when you see his creation around you. Number seven, worship. Music connects you emotionally to God and it sets your heart on fire. Here's my point. Every one of those are vastly different. You're going to engage with God differently. This is not an excuse. It's a diagnostic. God, what's going on with me? Why am I interacting with you the way that I'm interacting with you? Why do I feel so dry in this environment? Why are these people all fired up and I feel completely lost? Why does this seem to connect in with everyone sitting around me but me? You're unique. It doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It just means you're unique. And you got to find out what that is to move around and you get on fire. This is all part of it. All right. Let's dive into spiritual gifts. Here we go. 
What's a spiritual gift? 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. You ready? Here we go. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. What's a spiritual gift? Here you go. A relatively consistent extra empowerment by God in an area of ministry. Extra empowerment in an area of ministry. You're already doing it, but it's easier for you. Let me give you those examples. Once again, everyone's called to have faith. Some people just believe and don't doubt, and it's easy for them. Evangelism, we're all supposed to evangelize, but some people have a connection with other people, and when they share it, boom, they got a Billy Graham thing going on, right? Healing, everyone's called to pray for healing over other people, but some people are the point people where God goes, and I want you to do it. They walk up, click, everything changes. Awesome. Remember, I mentioned earlier, spiritual gifts are cutting in line. Right? Remember, it's a gift. God gave it to you as a gift. It's a present. It's nice. It's good. Hmm. Let me explain how some of these gifts work. Mercy. Everyone's called to extend mercy to others, but you have special eyes to see who needs help in any given room. That's a spiritual gift. Helps. Everyone's called to help others, but you tend to know what people need and how to do it so the true need is ministered to. That's a gift. Teaching. Everyone's called to help others understand Christianity, but you know how to teach in a fashion that people click with and are drawn to the Lord more abundantly. Let me be clear. The gift is different from the gifts. We all, as true believers, have the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he does all kinds of cool stuff. Let's be very clear. We have the greatest gift that we could possibly have. Do you get little bonus ones? I don't know. That's for God to decide. But you have the best. What types of spiritual gifts are there? There are five main passages of gifts in the Bible. They are in Romans 12, 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 30, Ephesians 4.11 and 1 Peter 4.11. The largest teaching is in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. There are 19 listed spiritual gifts. Did you know that? Here's what they are. Prophecy, speaking messages from God. Number two, ministry or administration, which is organization and systems. Number three, pastor teacher, which is a shepherd of other people and explaining the word. Number four, exhortation, is to warn or encourage strongly. You're a motivator. Number five, giving. 
the ability to be generous with finances and to earn it just comes easy to you. Number six, ruling or leadership. The ability to guide and move people, directing them where they need to be. Number seven, mercy. A kind, you're compassionate, and you're lenient. Number eight, wisdom. The ability to know the right thing to do. Number nine, knowledge, the ability to know information that other people may not. Number 10, faith, the ability to believe confidently what God says without doubt. Number 11, healing, to bring restoration to people physically, mentally, and emotionally. Number 12, miracles, the ability to bring the supernatural to our world. Number 13, discernment, to know and track on what is good and right. Number 14, tongues, the ability to speak in languages that you have not learned prior. Number 15, interpretation of tongues, the ability to translate a language you have not learned prior. Number 16, apostle, meaning authority and leading advancement. Number 17, helps, is bringing great benefit to people in need. Number 18, evangelism is the strength and drive and ability to share the gospel in your faith. And number 19, speaking or preaching, conveying the truth of Jesus in a winsome and understandable way. All right. There are 19 listed. Which one do you have? Well, that's interesting, right? Are some more important than others? Yeah, actually there are. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 31, it says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. There's a lot of gifts, but there's certain gifts that are better than other gifts. So you should really want those. What are those better gifts? The ones that bless the church more. So many of us long for gifts to make ourselves feel better. And that's not what they're for. Gifts are to serve other people more effectively. I don't believe 19 is it. I believe those are samples. There are gifts that the Bible talks about, and then it's not in that list. Every list is different. If every list is different, there's not one complete list. Can we agree on that? They're samples. Why is that important? Because God may have gifted you with something that's not on the list, and it's still a gift from him to do ministry effectively. So many of us, we always try to play it up, right? Well, I can kind of do this. This isn't a big deal. What's really a big deal? Hold up. You don't know what a big deal is. Holy Spirit knows what a big deal is. So if God has gifted you with something, let me give you an example. There's nothing on that list that talks about remote viewing. You're like, remote viewing? Here's the story. Jesus meets one of his disciples. He comes up to him. His name is Nathaniel. Do you remember what happens? He walks up and says, hi, Jesus, I'm Nathaniel. And he says, hey, Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before you ever showed up here. That's creepy. What do you mean you saw me? Jesus already saw him and had a vision of him before that guy ever arrived. That's not on the list. Does that mean it's not a gift? Oh, it's a gift. You know what else isn't on the, on the list? Interpreting dreams. Did Daniel interpret dreams? Yes. Was that a gift from God? Absolutely. Was it powerful? Yep. It's not on the list. Your gift 
may not be on the list, but that does not mean it is inferior to the ones that are on the list. Please just let God move through you the way he moves through you. People ask a lot, so are these just like regular, like what's a natural talent and a God-given talent? I don't know. Here's what I do know. If God gave it to you and it is to be used to serve other people more powerfully, let's call it a spiritual gift, right? Okay. Are spiritual gifts unlimited? No, just because you have it doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, correct? Okay, here's why this is so important. A cessationist teacher who said that there are no longer gifts, certain types of gifts today, said one of the reasons he reasoned out was that if there was truly a gift of healing, that person would just simply go and empty all the hospitals. So if you're not doing that, then obviously you don't got the gift. Hold up. That's not how it works. You don't suddenly become God just because you have a gift. As a matter of fact, God may go in and go, nope, 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 yep, nope, 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 yep. It doesn't just empty out. You don't have unlimited power. You're not suddenly genie from Aladdin. You understand what I mean? That's not how it works. This is a very important verse. I need you to write this down. 2 Timothy 4.20. 2 Timothy 4.20. You probably missed it if you read past it. Here's what Paul said. I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. I left Trophimus, a guy, ill at Miletus. I'm sorry, what'd you do? You left a dude that was sick. Why'd you do that? Because you don't have the gift of healing? Do you guys know how gifted Paul is? He's hyper-gifted. And he left somebody sick, and God didn't heal that person. It's very important for us to understand that just because you have a gift or just because the Holy Spirit's moving does not mean that you always get the answer yes to everything you want. It's not true. What are spiritual gifts for? Let me read to you these three verses. It's very clear. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, as each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here you go. There are four reasons why spiritual gifts are around. Number one, to build up the church. Number two, to glorify God. Build up the church Glorify God. Number three, as evangelistic evidence that God is real. As evangelistic evidence that God is real. And number four, it's the work of the church as ambassadors of the kingdom. It's just what we do. Here's the most important piece about this. All spiritual gifts don't make sense unless they're in community. Your spiritual gift was not given to you just to feel cool and stay at home. Every spiritual gift only makes sense when used in the body. Why? 
it's really lame to have the teaching gift when no one's home. <laughs> you can't evangelize yourself. And who are you going to have mercy and helps for? You? That's not what the gift's for. So if you are a solo, isolated Christian, your gifts don't make any sense. It's only when you start to use them in the body of Christ do they come and fan into flame. Some of us are so scared of failing, we've never even tried. Mm. Are they all for today? Yep. How do we know that? Because that's all the instruction of Scripture. There's not one verse that says that they're not. And you go, well, hold on. A lot of the cessationist teaching says that in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12, it says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. They're like, see, stuff ends. All right, let's keep reading. Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall now fully, even as I am fully known. When's that going to happen? The return of Jesus Christ. When are the gifts going to cease? When Jesus Christ returns. Until then, they're still in play. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, praise the Lord. So how do you get a spiritual gift? Every good gift, James 1.17, every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. How do you get a gift? Your daddy gives it to you. There you go. But there's a very important part that we're all missing, and that is the beauty of discovery. How did I know that I had a preaching and teaching gift? I tried to preach and teach, and it went okay. You understand? When we have that shy and that fear and that, oh, no, I don't want to make a mistake and all that, I don't want to have any risk, I don't want to have any failure, when we have that, you're never going to know until you step out. That's why it's so important to be in atmospheres and environments that encourage you. Hey, let's go. I don't know if you have it or not. I have no idea, but it's already a natural ministry. You're already supposed to do it as you're already doing it. Did it come easy to you? That's, do you understand why this shouldn't be scary? It's not scary. It's normal stuff. All of us should be doing that. But wow, when you know you have a gift, it comes alive. Now, do we get them all? No. Why? The Bible says to this one I give this, to this one I give this. Why doesn't God give us all of them? Because we are so individualized, if he gave it all to us, we wouldn't leave our house. <laughs> God has to do a lot of stuff to force us to get together. I'm going to suggest to you, it says that in the Corinthian church, he said, you don't lack any spiritual gift. Here's what I think. Back in that day, they had regional churches. Nowadays, we have splintered churches. I would suggest to you that God will equip every region with all the gifts they need. But you're never going to see them all operate in power until you all hang out together. Why? Because he wants his unity so badly. 
And you're going, why are all these gifts in this church and all these gifts in this church and why are all these gifts? Because first of all, they're all hanging out together because if they don't, they feel like weirdos. Right? That's why they're hanging out together. They don't want to be judged by everybody else. All the people that are going, listen, man, I, I'm so intellectual. I'm this way. Where do you gravitate? Towards an intellectual church. Why? Because when you're around all the other weirdos, you're like, dang, what's wrong with me? You don't want to hang out with them anymore. But do you understand the danger if we all remain separate? That's not the body of Christ. We've got to get together and allow the Lord to move. Can you get more spiritual gifts? Yes, but please check your motive why. Why do you want another spiritual gift? Are you using the one that you have so much that you're like, wow, I have so much room for more, right? Because here's the thing, what are spiritual gifts for? To serve. If you're not serving, you're not using your spiritual gifts, right? So you have to serve. Why do you want more? Because everything God gives is in the upside down paradigm, is it not? The greater the title, the greater the servant. The greater the gift, the more you gotta serve. Do you want more gifts? Do you want greater gifts? Because here's what it means. You got more responsibility. If you are the one God gave the gift of healing to, you better be on it, right? Because there's a bunch of us hurting out here and we sure need you to move. You can't be back and going, well, I'm kind of shy. I don't want you to be shy. I want you to come pray for me because I'm tired of hurting, right? Do you really want more spiritual gifts? Why? Because it makes you feel better? Hold on. Your identity in Jesus is what needs to be strong. You don't need a gift for it. Okay. There's little to nothing in the Bible about methodology of how to use a gift or how to get a gift, what it looks like. All we know is that we have to ask our Heavenly Father. You got to chase after it. But every time you get it, you need to use it right. Listen to Hebrews 5.14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How did you get good at discernment? Training. 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 You have to hone and train in your gift. This is why there are classes on gifts. Well, I can't believe there's a class on a gift. Yeah, that's ridiculous. You can't teach a gift. You don't even know if you have it. You got to go and show up in an environment where you try it. Maybe that's useful in your class. But if you do have it, you need to learn how to use it. Here's the ironic thing. We're completely cool with going to a preaching conference, but not a healing conference. Why? Because you'll go to an administration conference, won't you? Do you realize that's a spiritual gift? You're completely cool with that. Well, yeah, you got to learn how to use your gift of administration. Hold up. You got to learn how to use all the gifts. You got to learn how to use your gift of prophecy. Where are you going to find out that? You better go into a class and figure it out. We have to hone and train our gifts. What? Do you guys know the parable of the talents? What happened? God gave them something, and what did they do? They ignored it and they hid it. How did God feel about that? Not awesome. Why am I giving you stuff if you're not even using it? No, you need to use it. We need our church and our region to be utilizing the gifts that God gave us. Amen? Amen? 
more and more and more. Hmm. It's interesting. The Bible says if you, it says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given from the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. That's how God feels about stewardship. Use it or lose it, right? So how do we use it in a healthy manner? How did the Bible know? How did those people know when to use their gift and when not to use their gift? Maturity and discernment. They had to grow in that. And let me just share this again. When love is absent, things go terribly wrong. If you pursue the supernatural and not connected to God, you're just using and manipulating him. The number one most important thing is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What's the second one? And love your neighbor as yourself. When you start seeing people as lab experiments, something's wrong with you. When you start seeing people as notches on your belt or tally marks, oh, I got another healing. You're not looking at people's hearts. That's when there's a distortion and spiritual gifts get really yucky. That's not how the church should operate. The church should say, I care about you so much. Is there anything I have to help you out? It should always be motivated by compassion. It should not be motivated by, check me out, watch this. If you ever have that attitude, God might need to sideline you and go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not being healthy. Okay? And the last thing that I'll say on this is that you are accountable for how you handle your gift. Because I am too, right? If I teach heresy, what happens? Somebody's going to correct me, right? I hope so. They're going to come in and go, hey, pastor, that's, not, that's actually not accurate. And a bunch of people got hurt because of that bogus teaching. We're all supposed to hold each other accountable, are we not? If you have a gift, you should be accountable for the use of your gift. If you come cranking out with a, thus saith the Lord, and you have no idea what you're talking about, and you're just being immature about it, what you just did was wreck somebody's life. You think there's no accountability for that? Oh, yeah, there is. Well, I'm too nervous then, and I'm not going to use it. That's why you have to be mature. I'm not trying to scare people back into their little rabbit gopher holes. I'm just trying to say that this, we got to take this stuff seriously. We're dealing with God and we're dealing with people's hearts. So we always have to be gentle, right? Our final week in this series is going to be talking about how do we keep all this stuff healthy? Because I'm going to start moving us more into some of the stranger stuff and the stranger stuff, right? We're going to start talking about how to operate in some of the crazier stuff. It can go bad real fast. We don't want that. We want healthy we want strong, we want whole. Yeah? That's what we want. All right. All right. As we begin to wind down, let me share with you thoughts on anointing. You ready? So we have talked about the normal Christian experience. We have talked about spiritual gifts. We've talked about the unique design of personality and how every one of us are different. Let's wrap it up with understanding the concept of anointing. To me, this is a huge deal. Here's what we know about anointing. It's not a gift in a spiritual gift sense. It is an empowerment of God's presence. It's the Holy Spirit taking over, and it changes the atmosphere. Y'all remember what we were talking about? 
Back into the anointing gift. All right. It tends to be attached to a person, but what did I say? There's also location and event anointing. That's what we call like little revivals, stuff like that. Well, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is really baking really strong in one environment, right? And also there's anointing for offices in the church. For example, in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, king, they got anointed. King David was anointed because he was a king. The priests were anointed because they were the priests. In other words, their job needed a special anointing. And so the Holy Spirit would come down and come on them. When they were out of the office, whoop, the Holy Spirit would leave. That was in the Old Testament. Now the Holy Spirit doesn't leave, right? He comes and he stays. But sometimes he gives extra filling to offices. How do we know that? Well, if you read in James, it says if anyone's sick, he should go to the who? The elders and get prayed for. Why? Because the elders are anointed in the office to pray for them. All right? Anointing is very, very valuable to me. Why? Because at its core, it means that God is here. And that's all I want. Do you want more of God in your presence? Do you want more of his presence in your life? Of course you do. It means the Holy Spirit is moving in his power, and that's all that I care about. But here is the oddity, and this is the little gem of truth that I'm going to give you as we close out. Anointing is odd. Why? Because it has little to do with maturity or godliness. In other words, sometimes God selects the most unusual people to anoint, and a lot of them are jerks. That's kind of odd. If you've been uh, in charismatic circles, you understand that you've run into this a couple times. You'll come up and you'll notice somebody is super gifted or super anointed, and you go up to them and they're kind of, something's wrong with them, right? And you're like, why in the world are you anointed? Something's wrong with you, buddy, right? Okay. This is actually how it works. You know who was super anointed? King Saul. I don't even know if that dude's saved, right? <laughs> king Saul, super anointed as the king of Israel. He led victory in war. He prophesied for the Holy Spirit on multiple occasions. He was absolutely anointed for a time, and he's a bad guy. Here's the other story that'll blow your mind. Moses had a brother named Aaron. He was the first high priest of Israel. Do you remember this? Do you know when he received his anointing as priest, when he received his calling? This is so crazy. He received his calling according to scripture when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. Why is that important? Because what was Aaron doing? The golden calf. At the moment he was given his anointing as high priest, he was down at the bottom of the hill leading the entire nation astray crazy. Why would God anoint such a knucklehead? Because God had stuff to do, and he was always going to anoint Aaron. It had nothing to do with Aaron. It had to do with his people needed a high priest, and he was going to work on his maturity later. Is this important? Keep following with me. Here we go. Samson. Anointed? Here we go. He tore a lion apart with his bare hands. I don't know about you, but that's not normal. 
He beat up 30 men and stole their clothes. He caught 300 foxes and tied their tails together. He beat down a Philistine group that burned his wife to death. He killed 1,000 men with a donkey jawbone. He ripped off the city gates and moved them. He pushed down pillars and killed 3,000 people. Was he anointed? He better be, or I'm an underachiever. Right? Do you remember when Samson got anointed? When? Birth. What did he do to deserve it? Came out of the womb. I don't even think that was his idea. He was a Nazarite, right? He was anointed and he was set apart by his parents and he knew he was anointed because he had an office to fulfill. What was the office? He was a deliverer. He didn't even know really what that meant. He knew the big picture, but check this out. Do you know anything about Samson's character? Here we go. Samson had wives, girlfriends, and run-ins with Philistines in terrible situations. Samson was disobedient to his parents. Samson broke the rules and is rebellious by nature. Samson was entitled. Samson was angry and a hothead. He has a terrible track record with women. He is selfish, and he gets people killed by his actions. He is intelligent, but he is not wise. He is arrogant, and he doesn't steward his anointing. And yet he's one of the most anointed men in the entire Bible. I hope you guys are starting to put together the pieces here, because here's why. Be very careful of duplicating the lifestyle of an anointed person, because that's not why they're anointed. The Holy Spirit's getting stuff done despite them. Here's the problem with the church. The minute someone has an intense anointing, what does the church do? They put them in leadership. but it's not maturity, it's anointing. Have you ever seen anybody where you go, dang, there's all these people that say they got healed through that guy's ministry. That guy is messed up. You ever felt that way? Welcome to anointing. Here's the thing. The reason why I make such a big deal about this is that if you have ever been walking in the supernatural world, world for any length of time, you watch how everyone gravitates towards anointed people. And they automatically assume that God loves those people, they're special people, they're super mature people, and that somehow they're so close to God, they get this incredible anointing. The Bible says otherwise. So what should we do as a church? You do not put people in leadership because of their anointing, you put them in because of their character. What anointing should mean is thank the Lord that that anointing is in your church. It doesn't mean that you suddenly give them a title. So much hurt and wounds have been made by people trusting in someone that's anointed when in fact they're very dangerous. Anointing does not equate maturity. One last thought. Do you realize that anointing ebbs and flows? It's like, man, I was in the mission field, now I feel totally dry. There was that one time we were in college and everything was going crazy and it was super awesome and then it all dried up. There was this revival and then everything was moving so good and we're all in the groove and then it just dissipated. Why? Because the Holy Spirit went in and said, you guys set the altar, I'm lighting the fire from heaven, let's go. And then at some point he went, and scene, I'm out. And he moved on. What did we do wrong? Nothing. Time is over. Or sometimes there is something wrong. 
his people are not interested anymore. Fire got started because there was so much prayer and passion, and then eventually people just got bored. And the Holy Spirit said, well, if you're not interested, I'm not interested, and walked out the door. Hmm. I realize this stuff is complicated, but it's not completely mysterious. There are reasons for why things are happening. I know sometimes we look at it and we just go, God, what? Am I supposed to wait for you? Am I supposed to chase after you? Am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do? That person over there, everything seems to go right for them. And then this person's like super gifted and super anointed. And, and I've been praying for this for like five years and I'm getting nothing. God, what is going on? What do you have against me? Do you understand why that's a bad question? You're putting too much emphasis on you, and you might well be putting all your energy into the wrong category. Yes, we got to grow up and mature, but sometimes it's just a gift. When you get the gift, you got to practice it. You got to learn it. But wow, please don't beat yourself up. We're all growing, are we not? Nobody's got the corner market on this. No one's got it all figured out. We're just growing together. But please have understanding and grace for one another. Nobody's doing it right. Everybody's doing it wrong. But God's so nice to us, isn't he? He keeps moving in our midst. We've talked about prayer, talked about gifting, talked about anointing. As we move forward, we're going to start operating and talking about things like healing, talking about things like prophecy, talking about things that start getting a little bit more unusual, and we'll talk about how do we keep all this stuff healthy and how do we practice it? How do we do it right without allowing the enemy to get in on it? Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are good. We know you're good and we love you. God, there's so much information to sort and sift, and yet it seems to be pretty simple at its core. You love your kids, and you want us to have everything we need for life and godliness. But you kind of spread stuff out, so we'll be together as a family. God, right now, while we have clarity of mind, we want to submit under your leadership and say, yep, that's the best idea. We trust you, we love you, and Lord, you are worth pursuing even when it's hard. We will chase after you, we will not give up. We will say, Lord, if you want us to pray and pray and pray for breakthrough, we're gonna do that. If you want us to just, one day you're gonna bless us, then we're not just gonna say that we've arrived. We're still going to work on our character, and we're still going to work on our identity. Lord, we need more of you. Holy Spirit, we want more room for you to move. We as a church so badly want everything you have for us, and we just ask that you would hear our cry and move gently among us. We ask, Lord, that you would begin to spur all of us that have different gifts that have never even been brought out of dormancy. Because, God, I know you have more for us. Some of us, Lord, have multiple, multiple giftings. We have no idea. 
But what we do know, Lord, is that if we have you, we have everything. So God, may we not make your power a deity. You, your face, your nature, your heart, only you are deity. And we worship you. Oh God, allow us to be tightly knit to your heart so we do not go astray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.